seconds flat. Give me up. Put it down, put it This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Hello again, friends. Welcome to Mile 149 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. We're so happy to have you here with us once again. Phil, how you doing, buddy? Ah, doing well, Travis. It's good to see you, man. It's great to see you. Are you actively training for the New River Half Marathon? Is that still on the table for a few weeks out? It is. You know, last week was a vacation week for me, so I've I took the zone two training to another level and dropped it down to like zone zero and one and just did a, a bunch of hiking and backpacking to kind of refresh and spend some time out in the woods. So it's on tap, but uh, training has been going reasonably well. Time on feet. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, cool. I look forward to talking more about that in the future and seeing how the race goes. We've had some big race results from the last two weekends, Phil. So Let's go ahead and dive into those and share some of our reactions. First, the day before Boston, we had Rotterdam, a race that we didn't preview, but there were a decent number of big names in the field, and it always leads to some good action at Rotterdam. It was Bashir Abdi, teammate of Phil's guy, Sir Mo, Mm -hmm. who who took the win in a stellar time of 203.47. Uh, Futsum Zinasalase was the top American in 209.40. That's certainly enough to put him in the discussion for the U.S. trials next February in Orlando, don't you think, Phil? Oh, very much so. And, well, friend of the show, Andrew Colley ran 211.26 there as well. Yeah, he was the second American, uh, finished 16th overall. Uh, despite a slight fade, Over the last 5K, that's a new personal best for Andrew by nearly a minute, improving on his grandma's 2019 time. So there's been a little gap since he Mm -hmm. had his uh, big run in Duluth. As he told us, a lot of injuries in that space since. But this is another great step for him over the past six months. I think if you were to ask Andrew, but looking at the splits, he might have wanted a little bit more. But I don't know that you're ever too upset about a nearly minute personal best no, so not congrats, at all yeah congrats to uh, andrew on a great run in rotterdam there was no elite american presence in the women's race which was won by eunice chumba in 22031 so phil rather than discussing that race more let's pivot a bit well, I, before we do that let me oh no, let no me let's let's a... not pivot a bit not yet phil, not so fast okay i had a rotterdam adjacent question but go Ooh. ahead Go well, ahead. relative to this, I, I'm curious on your perspective with Futsum and Kali specifically, especially with as loaded as these past two weekends have been with competition, what's the advantage of those guys going hmm. there to race versus being almost a hometown favorite at Boston or potentially going to, to London? What do you think they're getting out of going to Rotterdam versus somewhere where they may have a little more higher profile result? Yeah, it's a great question. First, you're going to get in the elite field and get elite field treatment. 
And I'm not certain that both would have that at each of the other races. Mm-hmm. Two, although probably not in the competition to win at Rotterdam going in, there is a value of seeing some different faces, racing against some different guys, maybe throwing yourself into some different competition. I also know the the way that those athletes are treated at Rotterdam is really first class, although mm-hmm. we don't necessarily think of it the same way uh, as the World Marathon Majors. It certainly has a ton of history. It's still a big-time international marathon. It's a big-time marathon. It's a very favorable course. that That is considered... Mm-hmm one of the fastest spring courses in Europe. I, there would be a real debate as to, uh, just from a course perspective, if we take away the competition, Rotterdam might in fact be faster than London. Mm-hmm. And, and that could be because the the number of turns on the London course. London weather, as we saw a little rainy again this year, temperatures are typically good there, but there is a higher chance of rain we've seen in London. They've had a couple hot years in Rotterdam uh, so uh, maybe it's 50-50 there, six and one, half dozen in the other. But I just like the thought to, to step away from how big and, and talent-packed the fields at London and Boston are, mm-hmm. of going to something else, getting a new experience, seeing a new place in the world, and, and really just enjoying a race. There will always be Boston and London. They will always have really strong fields. And maybe this is a way to stand out in your own way. What gets you excited about racing? We come back to that a lot in our discussion about uh, races we want to pick and training that we look to. If Rotterdam gets you more excited, then to me, given the class of racer there, it's worth the trip. That's fair. Now let's go Rotterdam Rotterdam adjacent (laughs) and pivot ever so slightly. Okay. I have Rotterdam on my very short list of international marathons I'd like to run. Uh, As we mentioned, great history, good course, something that at our level I think is also important. It's not quite the overwhelming sea of people that we get at the majors. Mm -hmm. If I had to pick a European marathon, I might well pick Rotterdam. It also gets a little bit of an edge for me because it's a spring race. There's so many good fall options, especially domestically. Right. It would be in my maybe like top three international races that I really want to run. Ooh, interesting. So okay. question is this, Phil, what is your top international marathon that you want to run? Oh, so when you posed this question originally, I kind of had a couple answers. And one was, was one we talked about a little bit ago, a few episodes ago, uh, was Berlin. Just yeah. because of the the history, the fast course, the international field, but I'm going to throw a little curveball and oh, do it. Put put comrades in there in Two Oceans International Marathon because oh. while technically they aren't 26.2 miles, they do have marathon in their title. <laughs> <laughs> Semantics. Somebody should have told those race directors. But I think those two events would be an absolute blast to run. To travel international like that. Yeah, I like that Conrad's pick, Phil. The 50-plus mile ultra marathon in South Africa. That's a fun pick. Another I'm going to put on my list, I'm excited to see what it's like this year. There's a push to add Sydney into the World Marathon Majors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's going to be a slightly different course. That'll be fun to see. I'd love to run something in Australia. You're right, Berlin would be a blast. Valencia. Uh, mm-hmm. that's been under perfect conditions the past few years. And that seems like a really fun race. 
Do you want to throw one out in the Americas, outside of the United States, but Western Ooh. Hemisphere? Let, I'll let you go first. I'm going to have to think on that for a second. Okay, yeah. I have a Canadian pick that I think would be interesting at Vancouver. Not so mm -hmm. much for the competition, but I know that course travels out through uh, Stanley Park. I mean, just this, the scenery, the landscapes would be absolutely beautiful there. Good climate. That's a late spring race. And then my under-the-radar Canadian marathon. I can't believe I just used that phrase, under-the-radar Canadian <laughs> marathon, uh, is at Calgary. Calgary is, a, is a, a late spring race. It's coming up soon. I believe that's a, a May race. It's at a little bit of elevation, but they, they normally get quite good weather there. Calgary is a city I'd like to spend some time in. It's like you're Denver, but you're right up against the mountains, not in uh -huh. the foothills, you know, a little bit smaller. You got the rodeo, everything going on. I think Calgary would be a really fun place to go race. You strike me as a rodeo kind of guy. Well, with your tales of treating your alpacas there on the farm, I think, <laughs> I think Calgary might be right up your alley. I am a cowboy, Phil. That's right. You got anything you want to add to this list? You know, nothing that I would get super excited about. You know, the okay. only thing that would really come to mind potentially would be Toronto. Yeah, that's uh, a good race. Just because they, that always seems to have a really strong Canadian field. Of, yeah. You know, kind of guys that are looking for the, you know, to make the Canadian team. But I don't know. I might come see the rodeo with you in Calgary. I would go to Toronto or Calgary with you for a marathon, Phil. I think either would be a really fun trip. Uh, put it on the calendar. We'll pencil that in because I know there's no chance you're going. <laughs> <laughs> no hall pass on that one. Yeah, let's hard pivot now, Phil. Uh, let's go to Boston and the race result heard around the world. Down goes Kipchoge. Like a heavyweight boxing match, he was taken out by TKO in the Newton Hills. And Evans Chabet again won the Laurel Wreath, defending his 2022 championship. Chibet is your first repeat male champ since 2008. Do you want to take a guess who that was? Oh, my goodness. I he was in our brackets. Earlier, yes. And now I'm blanking on the answer. Robert Chariot. Yep. He finished in 205.54 on a day with some rain, uh, a, a light headwind most of the way. But for Boston, not too bad. The big story is how this one played out with Kipchoge attacking from the start, he ran a blistering 14-17. First 5K on the downhill out of Hopkinton. And in a sure sign of impending doom for our American pick, Phil, Connor Mance was on his shoulder through the opening miles. <laughs> that was not the strategy we advised on our uh, Boston preview episode. No, that's that's everything that you don't want to do. And yeah, as I watched the race and I was just screaming at Connor Mance, just stop, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there was that other piece of me thinking, boy, if he could do this. <laughs> it would be incredible, but he was just asking a little too much. The leaders went through half in 62-19, then dropped a 4.23 on the downhill 16th mile. Again, Phil, I respect Kipchoge's greatness, but these seem like novice decisions on this course. He blasted the two stretches of the race that mm -hmm. Boston first-timers attack and then pay for later. No, the... the Two thoughts that I had on his strategy was one, exactly what you said, that this was a novice approach, you know, and he led from the front, what, through 13 and, mm -hmm. you know, 
essentially until he fell off there around mile 20. But then as well, thinking about this course and the type of races he typically does well at, you know, are mostly set up as time trial type events rather than racing technical race, races. Do you think that's part of why he went to the front? Because there were no pacemakers and he felt he needed to be the pacemaker to put this out on a pace that he thought only he could handle? Not necessarily, because he's had races in the past where he's been happy to kind of sit in and just ride the train, you know, until those last handful of miles and where he just shifts to another gear. I think that goes to my point, though, Phil. In those cases, weren't those paced races where he could Mm -hmm. sit in and someone else was doing the work, not just for him, but the entire pack? And then, oh, absolutely. And in those cases, after the pacer dropped off, what did he do? He just did the work and ran away from everybody. That's right. He ran away from everybody and took control. And it felt a bit like he was trying to assert that same type of control from the gun because there was no pacer to control the action. Uh, Like so many of the 126 previous editions of Boston, a hard move in the Newton Hills put the nail in the coffin of many title hopes. Perhaps surprisingly, this time it was Elliot Kipchoge who couldn't respond. And we were down to three as the lead pack stormed down the backside of Heartbreak Hill. Ultimately, Evans Chabet pulled away with a 4.50, 26th mile. Scott Fobble caught Connor Mance in the last mile, which I believe Fobble also ran sub five in the final mile. Mm-hmm. That was for top American honors. And Boston's Matt McDonald squeezed past Mance as well, joining Fobble in the top 10. Phil, what do you make of the post-race rumblings that have followed with some commentators, including even Kara Goucher, suggesting that maybe Kipchoge isn't the greatest of all time? I'm not hearing all these people saying, no, he's not. They're just reopening the discussion. And their position is he has done it on flat, fast-paced courses and in time trials and not in races like Boston. I disagree with that partly because of number one, just the range that he has had through his whole career, Mm -hmm. you know, coming from a 5k background early in his career to being so dominant for so long, you know, he's what 16 of 18 in Mm -hmm. majors world championships and Olympics recently. So I, I don't buy that argument, but I think this may be the first chink in the armor that we are starting to see with his career. Mm. That last point's intriguing. Do you see that uh, from a perspective of age? Is it a sign that perhaps he's slowing? Or are you saying that Boston exemplifies perhaps his weakness? I think both. And that, one, this course strategy doesn't suit how he has been successful in the past. But then, two, you know, even as we talked about on the course preview episode, at some point, he is not going to be as dominant as he has been. And, yeah. you know, this was case number one here. And as well, there are guys, Evans Jabet being on that short list that are showing some strengths where he is beatable. Being the greatest of all time is not about winning every race. It's the <laughs> depth of his resume, which you just mentioned, and his unparalleled consistency. <laughs> if, if the weakest moment... And his marathon resume is a sixth at Boston at nearly 40 years old. That's a really good resume. Yeah. And the course profile argument does hold up in majors. 
But to me, the strongest rebuttal to the detractors, or perhaps those who are just raising questions, is the back-to-back Olympic gold medals in the mm-hmm. marathon, both won under difficult weather conditions. Unpredictable conditions, yeah. With, with no pacers. Yeah. It completely undermines this argument. And frankly, I think the Kipchoge's not the greatest marathoner of all time discussion is a ridiculous example of recency bias. It's, yeah. the, it's the hot take because he didn't win one that you and I included. We all expected him to win. And just because he didn't win this one, show me the resume of the runner who has done more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his, his weakest moment in the resume is a sixth at Boston. Go through the other guys that we put in our bracket of greatest male marathoner of all time. There's a whole bunch of DNFs on that list. Mm-hmm. Your your boy Kenny B had another one last week. Uh, he sure did. <laughs> yeah. So to suggest that this somehow tears apart this argument of Kipchoge as the greatest of all time, come on. I, I think you need more nuance and, and more understanding. And to come to the table with someone who has a better resume before we just turn against him because he didn't win one we expected. Then maybe a bigger question, Phil, is because of this result, does he return to Boston? And part two, if so, does he win? Yeah, really, I think that's the bigger question this raises is, you know, now that he has this experience, you know, maybe next year, I would love to see him come back. He doesn't take the first 5K out so fast and sits in the pack. But as well, I have to give him a ton of credit, you know, with how he finished that even as Mm -hmm. that lead group of three, ran away from him. He still hung in there and fought. I think his last mile was like a 520 or something. You yeah. know, when we look across the board at, at both London and a, a few other results there in Boston of, you know, other big name runners, Bekele being one of them, that once they got dropped, they just pulled the plug. Mailed Whereas it in. He, he still continued to fight for that sixth place finish. So just showing a ton of respect for the for the event, for the fans. I want to see him back here next year. I do too. And I do believe he will be back because of this result. But it leads to an interesting dilemma for Kipchoge next year. What goal does he most want to pursue? Because this is an Olympic year. Mm-hmm. It would be the ultimate greatest of all time move if he came back to Boston next year and won it and then backed up with Paris and won that at the Olympics later. Yes. (laughs) Just to slam the door shut on this argument. Uh But boy, does that seem like a really big ask of any competitor. And now we're talking about a guy who will be like 39 at the time. Right. Um, So does he have to choose between the two next year? And if so, uh, let's say he picks the Olympics pushing Boston to 40-ish years old, then it's an even bigger challenge. Of course, we know he can't push back another Olympics. That's kicks the can four years down the road into his low to mid 40s. And that's a much more difficult ask of his running ability at that age and one which he hasn't shown any interest in chasing LA 2028. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think he'll be back. His, he inferred that in his comments at the post-race press conference. Actually, I take that back. It was the next day. He did not speak to reporters after the race that day, which I thought was disappointing. And is something that a man of his stature, we wouldn't expect it from. I, I don't know that he 
consciously avoided it. It just seemed like he got away and we didn't get to hear from him. But that's something in the other major sports we would never let happen. The, the biggest star yeah. not speak to the media afterward. He did spend quite a bit of time the next day, probably I would suspect knowing him trying to make up for it because he saw how that played. Another wrinkle to this is what does this do with New York? You know, the, the potential plan mm-hmm. to try to get all the majors, that's the other race that kind of plays out like this. Although I do think the New York course is a bit more favorable for him than the Boston course. So let's move to the women's race after that. What a day for American Emma Bates. That's my American pick, Phil. She's your American hero, Travis. Yes, she is. <laughs> if, if I learned one thing from the past few weeks of racing, Phil, it is that I should only pick women's races because I crushed these, but my men's choices were absolutely <laughs> abysmal. <laughs> so in the women's race, after a pedestrian pace in the opening miles kept over two dozen women in the mix, Bates was the lone American to maintain contact by halfway as the pace quickened. And then she moved to the front through the hills and led a group that had been whittled down to a half dozen all the way through 23 miles. Phil, she looked tremendous, comfortable, smooth, well beyond the two-hour mark. Maybe this is a good piece of video evidence that economy isn't only in how the body looks moving through space, because the small East African pack alongside her looked far more unwieldy and disheveled but sure moved well when they needed to, didn't they? Oh my goodness. No, that coming from a clinical side where there has been so much emphasis on the potential role of gait analysis and improving performance and reducing injury. And that's a perfect case study in that your body is going to self-optimize what is most efficient for you. Mm -hmm. And that there is no one perfect form that we can prescribe for everybody. And watching how they move and just the variety, number one, that visually we can't define economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And number two, there is no ideal from a performance perspective. Each body finds its own path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And we develop efficiency over time just through the practice of movement, right? Miles and miles and miles. Yeah, it's a great example. Ultimately, Bates couldn't hang on, but finished an admirable fifth in 2.22.10, one of the fastest American performances ever at Boston. Helen O'Beary of the On Athletic Club. That was my pick, Phil. You're right. Yep, she took the win after being a late addition to the field with a trademark close in the final 2K. You know, I think I might take her strategy for a fall marathon and uh, just jump into something three weeks out and... uh... Let's see how it goes. From what I know of her training and yours, I believe that you two might be getting to those final three weeks in slightly different shapes. She I'll just seemed, be a little more tapered. <laughs> yes, she seemed well prepared. You seem well rested. <laughs> uh, we've seen that closing kick from her so many times now on the track and the roads. Incredible performance from Helen O'Beary. Great win in her second marathon. Now, before we shift to London, Phil, any last thoughts on Boston? You know, it's fun to see Des Linden race again. I'm curious how many more she mm-hmm. has in her. It was great to see Alfie and Tulema really put a good performance in there. Am she I did once again? 
Am I correct? And that's a PR time for her? You're running 224.37? I'll get the top men on that right now. I don't know her PR, but it sounds like it could have been. But a great, anyways, a great result for her after making the last Olympic team. In short, I think just the Olympic, or excuse me, the women's U.S. potential Olympic field looks very strong right now. Yeah, there's no question about that. There is significant depth in the women's field. Both women's and men's fields seem to have uncertainty as to who the top three will be, but it seems as if there are more women that have a shot. Are, are you yeah. in agreement, Phil? You know, I think from the men's side, there's probably five or six that are going to put together competitive trials. From the women's side, it's probably two, potentially to three times that number, you know, 12 yeah. to 18 that, that you feel could, could make it. Yeah. And then there's always going to be the outliers too. Like we didn't expect to see the Jake Riley performance that we got at Atlanta. Right. There's going to be a couple of those in each race as well. I have heard back from our statsman that is a personal best from Alephine at Boston, 224.37. Of course, that is with an asterisk because the point-to-point nature of the course. Mm -hmm. So it's not world record eligible. It's world best time eligible, essentially. So uh, yeah, that would be over a minute better than what she did. Uh, last fall at New York City. All right, let's turn our attention to London then, Phil. We had another lightning fast field there. Uh, most of us didn't get to see the action because FlowTrack had the U.S. broadcast rights. And also, from my understanding, they had some technical difficulties. Technical I difficulties. hope you didn't pay too much for that FlowTrack subscription. No, 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 Phil. Uh, <laughs> so most of the race apparently wasn't even broadcast. But Phil, since it's you and me and just our best friends here, I'll give you my advice. Do what I do. I got rid of flow track a while back because uh, the coverage has been substandard and go get you a VPN and watch a borderline legal internet stream. Like I did. That's the answer. <laughs> I was getting more listeners to get you in trouble on that. <laughs> that. That's fine. Do you know what? Turn me in. That's how I want to go. I was glued to this because I was trying to leave to get to a group long run that morning as they were coming down the stretch and, uh, the action in both the men's and the women's races was so fantastic. We'll start with the men like we did in Boston. We have a legitimate threat to Elliot Kipchoge's world record, and it's not Phil's guy, Kenanisa Bekele, who dropped out once again. Kelvin Kiptoom ran a course record and the second fastest marathon ever in 201.25. He did so in his second marathon, both 201 efforts. In this one, he covered the back half in 59.45, the fastest ever for that distance within a marathon, despite wet conditions and a pace that splintered the rest of the field. The real story within the story of Kiptoom's pacing, Phil, is from beyond the 30K mark. Kiptoom was on 203 pace at 30K. Then he ran the final 12K in 34.02. That's just shy of seven and a half miles at 4.34 pace to close Oof. a marathon. To give you some frame of reference, 4.34 pace, that's sub two-hour marathon pace. And he mm -hmm. did that over the last 12K. Both miles, 20 and 24, were in four minutes and 23 seconds. 
And those don't have the big downhill that we saw the fastest miles at Boston. Those are just flat miles. Jeffrey Cam Moore came in second in a new PB of 204.23. Happy to see that one. I'm a big Cam Moore fan and his that, that was a big, huge performance out of him. That's a minute plus PB. That's for a right. Very strong runner. His pedigree of cross country and New York City victories maybe didn't lead outsiders to believe he could stack up on this type of course. But as you said, big bounce back for Jeffrey Camor, our guy, Tamarat Tola, mm-hmm. the common man, the 203 <laughs> marathoner. He, he took third. And it was a good day for the Brits. Four in the top 10. They were led by Emil Caress in 208. Only two Brits have ever run faster for the marathon distance, Phil. Do you know who those men are? Oh, let's go. I'm going to take a guess on Mo Fair for one. That's right. He's got the fastest. He's not the best, but he got the fastest. Let's go with Ron Hill. Steve Jones. Ooh, okay. Okay. Uh, Ron Hill's a good guess, though. Phil Sessman actually slipped in just in front of Sir Mo at the end and had a good run. I wish uh, he had his dogs running with him. I know. You're a big fan of Phil <laughs> Sessman's dogs. They're, they're huge on the internet. Um, My dog Banjo's a little jealous of him. Yeah. Of them. <laughs> well, Banjo needs a faster guy to run with. Well, Banjo needs to put in some miles himself. <laughs> <laughs> love when a, gr- a guy is critiquing his dog's training plan. <laughs> Big thought on the men's race, Phil. I hope these two marathons we've seen from Kip Toom are legit. And just as significantly, I hope we get to see him at Berlin this fall chasing the world record. Actually, yeah. even better, come to Chicago, Kelvin. I, I know the weather is... Uh, perhaps a little less consistent, but we've seen world records fall in Chicago before. It's a course mm-hmm. where it's, it's capable. Uh, well, and, and I'm with you on that. I mean, what a, what an incredible for performance from his final 10 K being 2750 and yes. putting two minutes on that strong of a field, the last 12 you know, K or so, you know, basically just, just running away from him. Just to um, clarify there quickly, Phil, that, I believe he ran a 27.50 10K between the 30K and 40K. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. But um, you're right. Uh, down the stretch, I mean, he looked like he was just absolutely sprinting. I even sent you a text uh, I, that I went back and read, and I simply wrote, holy smokes, Kiptoom. And uh-huh. I, was, I was glad you were up and tracking. You were following along with the race, uh-huh. but, but not watching. It was breathtaking. And you know what was amazing about it, Phil, that has nothing to do with his performance itself. The amount of time between his finish and Jeffrey Camor, one of the greats of all time, mm-hmm. a, a, again, a world cross champ, a world half marathon champ. He runs 204. The guy's won New York multiple times. And that like three minute wait for Camor felt like an eternity where there was no yeah. one else in the picture. And it's not like it's just some bozo from around the corner that he beat here. It's one of the all-time greats. No, and the other thing I'm curious to see what falls out with this is the issue with his contract that uh, mm-hmm. Kiptoon had. You know, he raced in full Nike kit, but he has a pretty significant sponsorship by a Chinese company that he did not have any of their gear on. I'm curious to see what happens there. But anyways. The other two things I would take away, number one, I have to apologize to Sir Mo. I was 100% dead wrong, even though it doesn't happen often. 
<laughs> but what he had a very solid performance running 210 oh 21028 and then as well shout out to uh frank Lero, the top american running 21329 nice farewell for sir mo from the marathon yeah. at least i believe he's going to race yeah. uh, other road races a little bit before he retires I don't think Kelvin Kiptum has anything to worry about with the sponsorship because there's going to be plenty of other people knocking at that door soon. Yeah, uh, He's going to get bigger and better on that deal. To Frank Lara, he, he was actually in some of the foreign coverage I was watching a good amount because he ran a, a, a decent stretch of it with Phil Sessman. So, of course, the British coverage is showing him. Frank faded maybe the last 6, 7K or so. Mm-hmm. It's still a nice performance. Again, considering the conditions, it was not an optimal day. And that's what makes what Kip Toom did even that much more remarkable. But yeah, top American there. The top American in the women's race, Susanna Sullivan ran a new best of 224.27. So she's right there with Alephine. She's right in that mix. Uh, In the last of the big racing action, let's turn to the women in London. What a magnificent effort from Safan Hassan. That seems like another of my picks, Phil. Uh, it was a, a, even a somewhat bold pick by me in her debut. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Despite being dropped, uh, as an aside, we won't. That looked get, like a dicey pick early as well. It did. And we won't mention my Brett Robinson to break his own Australian record pick because <laughs> I think he was like four minutes off, but whatever. Uh-huh. So despite being dropped mid-race and even stopping to stretch out her quads, which had been a source of nagging pain in the weeks leading up to London, Hassan roared back to victory. She grabbed the lead less than a quarter mile from the finish and hammered home, as we've seen many times in championship track races. Hassan won in her marathon debut in a time of 2.18.33. Phil, what range? From Safan Hassan. Remember, at the last Olympics, she went... She had the 5K, 10K double. And don't forget, she won a bronze in the 1500 also. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. a triple medal, 1500, 5000, 10000. And now turns around, and in her debut, clearly not at top form. Also, we should add, coming off of training during Ramadan, and as a practicing mm-hmm. Muslim, that had huge implications and limitations for her training. Is this the greatest female distance runner ever, Phil? Just general female distance running. She's got to be in the argument just mm-hmm. with that range. I mean, even down to 800, she's run 156. Mm. Uh, you know, my thought with kind of following the coverage is why did that lead pack let her back in? Mm-hmm. If they had, you know, maybe they didn't have a choice, but watching how they're racing, they were not pushing that last half. And they had 20, 28 seconds on her at 25K. And it's not a, you know, this was a strong women's field. So yeah. why did they let her get back into the mix, knowing that she had that track speed towards the finish? Bridget Koskai stepped out early, I think maybe a mile in. She dropped. So that's your world record holder. And who those other ladies would have probably thought was the biggest threat for victory. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if Hassan's inexperience at the event is part of why they race the way they did. When she's that far back, and yes, we think of the track speed she has, but often it's one thing to have that speed, a second thing to translate it to the marathon distance, right? Well, and to execute it with 
you know, a K to go versus that. That's right. Five K or a 10 K. How much has been sapped from you over 25 miles uh, in the way that it's not when you sit at the back of the pack and remain attached for say 4,500 meters of a 5k. Mm -hmm. She was completely detached from the field. And so perhaps there was a thought that maybe she wasn't as serious of a threat as she turned out to be. Two, I also do wonder a little bit at the times and paces on that day in those conditions, did we in fact see the best we would see out of her competitors? Did, did they not have another gear to totally put a hammer down then, break her, and then be able to hold that and keep her so far away that she couldn't be a threat? And it's hard to know. It, yeah. Hindsight, of course, but if she's not the best ever, she's certainly now establishing herself as the most versatile. And the thing lacking from her best ever resume is just depth of resume. Mm -hmm. If she does this through the next Olympic cycle, uh, I, to me, it's, it's open and shut this case because she has done things over the last handful of years that are truly remarkable. Okay, Phil, transitioning from recent road results, we are super excited to introduce our new marathon series, the Road to Los Angeles 1984. As we near the 40th anniversary of the Los Angeles Olympic Games, we are producing a multi-episode retrospective on the 1984 Olympic marathons and the key lead-up races. LA 1984 was a seminal moment in marathoning. Women competed in the marathon for the first time, and that race featured an American favorite on her home soil. Meanwhile, in both the men's and women's races, a large number of the participants in our recent greatest marathoners of all time bracket were at or near their career peak fitness. From a historical perspective, LA presented a watershed following a series of Olympic marathons with diluted quality, depth, and competition. Boycotts robbed the 76 and 80 games of many top athletes. The United States, protesting the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, didn't send a team to Moscow in 1980, a time in which several Americans were among the world's premier marathoners. And while the Soviets responded in kind in 1984, they didn't have global elite marathoners like the U.S. In a stand against the discriminatory apartheid policies of South Africa, most African nations boycotted the 76 Montreal Olympics. Four years earlier, the Olympic marathon was marred by the terror attack on Israeli athletes in the athletes' village days earlier. And in 1968, Mexico City's elevation at over a mile high had profound impacts on runners who were just starting to understand the effects of altitude. So in those ways, LA84 is the biggest prize in marathoning we had seen in decades. And over the next year, approximately on the 40th anniversary of each big moment leading to LA, we'll bring you chapters in a story of our sport's most illustrious history. It will be an inside look at the races and the racers, the personalities and the training. 
Phil, I've poured through training logs, contemporary accounts, autobiographies from the key players, even some grainy VHS footage, and I am stoked to share this story with you. Uh, we're confident you'll take away a greater love for running and running history, as well as some detailed training theory discussion that still applies today. So this series kicks off next week with one of the most hyped races ever, the 1983 Rotterdam showdown between Alberto Salazar and Rob Di Castella. Phil, I can't wait to get this stuff out. It's fitting that it begins with our sesquicentennial episode, Mile 150, <laughs> and it will lead us right up to Paris 2024. So we got a bunch of episodes that we'll be sprinkling in over the next year, and you will learn so much about the history of the event, the training, and the characters involved. It, it's going to be a whole lot of fun. I've had a blast putting in the research for this uh, over recent weeks. Man, I'm excited to dig into this, both from a history perspective to you know, learn a bit more about some of these classic races that we've been talking about and trying to preview and discuss, but a little more background of what these races meant 40 years ago, but as well to look at some of the training that was going on at these times and what we've learned, what we're doing differently, but often what we're coming back to yeah, that, that was going on 40 years ago. What we're doing the same, or maybe another piece, what we're missing, what mm -hmm. the men and women of that era did well that maybe we could learn from and reapply today. Uh, and then there's certainly some things that perhaps we do better than they did at that time. But these are, are people, just take this as context. Uh, we spent time last year with Dick Beardsley on the 40th anniversary of the duel in the sun at Boston, which was 82. Uh, so 40 plus years ago, Dick Beardsley and Alberto Salazar ran nearly identical times in the searing heat that day to what the greatest marathoner of all time, Elliot Kipchoge, ran on that same course this year mm -hmm. with 2023 technology versus 1982 technology. Shoes, training, physiology, everything. Yeah. Let's actually wrap quickly with uh, another super shoe conversation because uh, you raised this point earlier, Phil. You want to go ahead and talk about maybe weather conditions, super shoe yeah. question you had. You know, we've talked about London and Boston a good bit today and looking at the weather really in both of those events was was a little wet, rainy. You know, certainly the road surface was was not ideal, but particularly watching the Boston results, you know, the top four runners there were all Adidas athletes, which, you know, Adidas traditionally is pretty well known for having a very grippy, tacky outsole, whereas particularly the Nikes and a few others maybe aren't so much known for that. So I'm curious, you know, you being a, a shoe guy, what your thoughts are on how much just the traction affects performance in those conditions. First, quickly to clarify, it was the top four men. Yes. Austin, who were all in Adidas. Uh, Helen O'Beary won the women's race in on clouds. But across both races, it was a good showing for Adidas. Also, uh, the point I've made in having this discussion with others is maybe the bigger takeaway is just the diversity and brands that are being represented mm -hmm. in the top 10 at these races. 
there's more options and more good options for the consumer than there were five years ago when Nike was significantly ahead of everyone else. Your point is well taken, Phil. In damp conditions, let's use that as the example, that continental rubber outsole tread on the Adidas Adios Pro 3 that, for example, those top four men were wearing, it's superior to the mm-hmm. outsole tread on the Nike. I, I don't think there's any question having run in both extensively. A counter, perhaps, to your argument is, what was the shoe lineup at London? Because we saw a little better performance from Nike at London, comparatively. Mm-hmm. And so part of the Boston success of Adidas is that it's an Adidas-sponsored race And so they're going to do their best to get many of the best Adidas athletes on the starting line. So I do believe that skews those results a little bit. A really interesting one from London is Emil Caress, who is an Adidas athlete, actually wore a Takumi Sen, which is more of like their 10K race. Right, their 10K racer, yeah. Yeah, it's a more traditional racing flat. It still has the Light Strike Pro foam and the rods through it to make it snappy, but it rides a little lower to the ground uh, like old racers used to. Adidas... Uh, we didn't see this on the podium, but Puma, the Puma Grip outsole is very quality in poor conditions. And the Asics outsole, I have found each of those in practice to be superior to the tread on the Nike, uh, in particular, the Vaporfly. I find that to be a little mm-hmm. more slippery, but that's without having ever raced in the, the newest edition of that, the third edition, which a lot of these professionals have now. So I couldn't speak to that. But again, the big takeaway here is it's an era of greater equality among the mm-hmm. shoes. There's great options. And now we can pick the thing which provides us over the marathon distance, the best comfort. That, that might be the thing that now the shoes are close to equally fast. And if you can get in the one that's most comfortable, that's probably the best scenario for your success at the 26.2 mile distance. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Phil, let's wrap it there. That was a a fun discussion to catch up on the recent racing. Uh, We'll see everybody again next time on mile 150. And we'll be giving you the inside story of the 1983 Rotterdam marathon. Uh, Again, probably one of the most anticipated showdown races in the history of marathoning. And as a precursor to that, we will dive into the Salazar and Di Castella training that led to them being at the top of the world in 1983 as they prepared to face each other in the Netherlands. I cannot wait to share that story. Everybody have a wonderful week. Train hard, have fun, and we will see you on mile 150 seconds flat.